Hi, this is Eric Ludi for the Daily Thunder Podcast. If you are enjoying these messages and want to take these truths even deeper, I invite you to join us in Windsor, Colorado at Ellerslie for one of our upcoming five-week or week-long discipleship training programs. Ellerslie's discipleship training has been designed to ignite your spiritual fire and to give you the tools for a Christianity that really works. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. We are going through quite the series uh, on Alfred the Great and gaining spiritual lessons from his life. If we were just talking about Alfred the Great uh, just for historical purposes, it'd be fascinating but it would have very little value to us as believers. And so the reason that I've brought this up is because of the parallels that it creates with our spiritual life. And sometimes just having a unique uh, template or texture or muse that you can utilize to see something maybe in a different way uh, really helps. And I think we've discovered that in and through this study. It's been powerful. It's been beautiful. And I think a lot of us have become Alfred fans. Some of us were like, who? Who's Alfred the Great? And now suddenly we're like, oh, I know who Alfred the Great is. And it's interesting because anytime you go back in time to 878 AD, there's not a lot of detail. They don't have good photos for us to study. You know, we have some statues, and so you can get, in a sense, the, the look of the guy. He had a beard, and that's, that's something we know. Uh, and, but a lot of the more personal details we don't know. And yet it's fascinating because many of us almost feel like we know the guy because of his decisions that he is going to make. Because if you were to look around you in this generation, there's not that many people that are living as Alfred lived back then. And yet we face very similar times where we don't have physical Vikings, but we have Viking ideology that is creeping into our nation. And so many people are wanting to lay down their weapons and just say, hey, look, I don't want to fight this battle. You guys come in, you take over, you do what you want. And what you're going to see is a man who understands his role and his assignment and his authority and his position, and he is going to wield it. And I think for many of us, we need to be reminded of the same. Christianity is all about a position. It is all about a certain authority. It's it's Christ's authority, Christ's position, but by faith we enter into it. And so in a sense, we are like sons of the king who have been given authority in his absence to manage what he has entrusted to us. And he has given us our bodies, our minds, our hearts, our emotions, yes, but sometimes that jurisdiction extends beyond that. And, you know, in my case, I have a marriage, I have a family, I have children, I have a church, I have a ministry, and I want to care for those the way I'm watching Alfred care for his territory. Not all of us are given a kingship of a nation. That is a very rare thing to be entrusted. But, and so many of us could say, well, if I was in that situation, of course I would do what Alfred's doing. I'm not so sure about that, because you are in this situation, and you may not be doing what he's doing. But your situation may not be as grand in scope, but it's still the same situation. You have an invasion of Vikings into your territory. That territory might be your thought life. Are you fighting and rising up and standing the way Alfred stood against Guthrum? And so as a result, what we get is a template of response. 
and we see how leadership works. We see how a king or how someone, how one with authority is to wield that authority in faith of the king, in the king of battles to actually push back against an encroaching evil. And that's deeply inspiring to me. I think the theme of mercy that we've witnessed in this, uh, I almost don't want to give it away as we move forward. It's sort of like if someone were to start in episode 15, I don't want to like give away some of the great moments that we just walked through with the character of Guthrum especially. It's like, no, no, they need to go back and listen to that. And yet for those of us that have walked through this storyline, wow, uh, it'd be hard, you know, if you were to say, what is the most impacting thing of studying this man's life? If you were just to ask me, that's a difficult one because how he is going to resolve and rise up in the midst of such impossibilities, such despairing circumstances, and still believe in his God, and still push forward against what would look like impossible odds, that's deeply inspiring to me as a man and as a leader. I mean, that's the type of thing I want to chew on all day long because that's my, my life in a nutshell. I've had so many moments where it seems impossible and God has nudged me to say, do you still believe me? Did, did I forsake you? Have, did I you know, grow weak, Eric? What is it that you trust in, your circumstances or in me? Though I am unseen, I am the same God and I've never changed. And there's a fresh rallying point that we all need on the island of Athelney in the swamplands, as, as Alfred is going to go through. And that's very significant for each of us. But then the, the, the theme of mercy that we're going to see, when you have such evil come in, you're going to see Alfred respond not with judgment, but with an invite into the kingdom of heaven. He wants the Viking souls. He wants them to see Jesus Christ. I mean, that is like such a bewildering thing to stare at because we understand it on the individual level. Like, okay, I'm going to go out uh, into this world today and there's going to be someone with Viking behavior, but I'm going to love them. However, when you go nation against nation, oftentimes we lose our sensitivity. And the same thing happens. Like when you see a politician who has a varying viewpoint or an opposing viewpoint, you have a tendency to dehumanize them. And if they were to catch a fatal disease and die, you go, oh, that's too bad and you lose your mercy. You lose that Christian quality that comes uniquely through the Holy Spirit, through a Christian, to care deeply even about those that oppose you. And we need to be watchful when Viking ideology comes into our culture. One of the things it can do is harden us in our Alfred-like position to no longer care about the souls of those that are doing evil in our world but to actually pull an Alfred and to pursue their souls and to show them mercy and to actually see their lives transformed. I mean, that to me is a hard one to say that it can be bested in any of the, the stories of Alfred. What's interesting is we have some really good stories still coming up. I feel bad because the, the, the crowd in here today is uh, graduating today, and so there's, there's a fraction of you that are going to be staying on for our alumni summit. And we're going to continue this, but the rest of you are going to lose the live edition uh, of Alfred. Uh, we have two weeks left in this. Can you believe you're, you're leaving now of all times? There was ever a reason to stay around for two more weeks just to get some more Alfred. So this message is called The Secret of Alfred's Armor. That's fascinating. Oh, I'm intrigued to see where this one's going. I need to turn on my clicker. Great leaders don't just win wars. They reinvent the way things are done. And so I've studied a lot of leadership over the years, and there's certain leaders that I am going to be extremely intrigued by. 
and there seems to be two qualities that I'm intrigued by, especially. One is the, uh, the desire not to be in the leadership position. Some of the greatest men that I've ever witnessed uh, that were leaders did not want to be the leader. And that's intriguing to me. Uh, George Washington, one. Uh, William Wallace, another. Those two specifically have had a big impact on my life when, I, when I've studied them in depth. And uh, that's one quality. The other quality is what someone does with their leadership opportunity, because it is. It's an opportunity, and you can use it for your own self-comfort, because when you are in a leadership position, you can get people to serve you and to serve your agenda and make your life more comfortable. Or you can pull an Alfred. Alfred has an opportunity and a window of time to change the world in which he lives. And because he has the authority that he has, he can actually make real-world changes. And he is going to leverage his position to change the world. Very intriguing to me. And that's one of the things, one of the qualities that stands out to me. Sir William Wallace and Sir Winston Churchill, two guys that I don't mind being associated with. And when I taught through the... uh, the World War II series, you know, my middle name's Winston, you know, so as a result, I brought that up quite a few times because I'm like, I like this guy. There's a whole bunch of people that hate Winston Churchill, and I happen to really like Winston Churchill. I don't want to necessarily look like him, okay? He's sort of a tubby guy with, like, uh, you picture him with a cigar and some brandy. It's like, no, no, not that part, Uh, but there's another part of Winston Churchill that is extremely intriguing to me, and Sir William Wallace, uh, so Wallace is going to do something that is going to change the course of military history. And this is in the future of this island, uh, in the Scotland uh, version, uh, the Scotland portion of it at the north. But uh, Edward I, who is different than the son of uh, Alfred, whose name is going to be Edward. I know it's terrible because it mixes it all together. But uh, in the, a couple hundred years from now, you're going to have uh, some bad English kings that are going to uh, have have some qualities that I wouldn't necessarily want any of us to imitate. And Edward is going to be one of them, and he is going to uh, be creating havoc uh, for uh, the Scots. And Wallace is going to rise up to defend his people. And at this time, it was feudal-style warfare. It wasn't the shield wall, which is what we've grown accustomed to in this time period, but it was feudal-style. Everyone sort of marches and, you know, stare straight forward, don't look to your right or to your left. You know, you stand shoulder to shoulder, you march. And the key is that you're not distracted by anything to your right or to your left. And that's one of the keys. And so Wallace, outgunned, outmanned, in every sense, he has no hope in this battle. He is going to change battle. He is going to invent something called the hobbler. He is going to bring over these horses from Ireland, and he's going to stick a swordsman on the side, and he's going to strike Edward's armies from the side because they are prepared to fight this way. They're not prepared to to fight sideways. And he's going to devastate them by hitting them from the side. And their defenses are up for this, just like our culture. Our culture has its defenses up for one specific thing, and they may be against Christianity. And that's why we're always praying that God would give us a hobbler. David was a hobbler. Esther was a hobbler. Gideon was a hobbler. It's like God's invention in the moment that changes the course of history. It's really fun. And when you're trying to reach someone's soul, sometimes you need a hobbler. You're not trying to harm them. You're actually trying to save them. 
And yet, if their defenses are up against you for, you know, I know you, you're one of those Christians, you're going to tell me, and then you hit them sideways with something they're not expecting, like you bend your knee and start washing their feet, they're like, whoa, I wasn't expecting that. Sir Winston Churchill, uh, I love, uh, I had to stick sir on both of them just to sort of make it feel British. Uh, They both were sirs, okay, so it is okay. But uh, Winston Churchill in World War I was over the Navy, and he is going to map out and draw out this idea because what they're having a tough time doing in World War I is having a, they're going to call it an amphibious attack. When you take a ship across the English Channel and you want to get your tanks or you want to get your men out onto the shore, it's very difficult because of the rough waters, number one. You have the beach and the ever-sloping uh, beach going into uh, the the land, and so it's very difficult. You have to, you know, have a dock built. You have to, you know, empty out way uh, far away, put it on separate ships, and bring it in. And so it's very complex. And the enemy loves to take you out when you're hanging out there. They'll just bomb you. I mean, it's not very easy to deal with. And so he's going to invent this amphibious, you know, water to land landing craft. And he's not going. They're not going to use it in World War One. But when he comes into prime minister position. First thing he's going to do is he's going to start working on that. And there, D-Day is all that. Remember those transport vehicles that come right up? and then and that's, that's a Winston Churchill invention that is going to change the course of war history. Very intriguing to someone like Eric Ludy. So we have a biblical model for this, where a leader is given authority, and they're going to leverage their authority to change these systems of government, these systems of life around them, okay? So one of the great illustrations of this is Moses. Now, most of us, because we learn about these characters in Sunday school, we oftentimes don't always think about the leadership that they exuded. They didn't mishandle their leadership. We just presume, of course, Moses was going to be a good leader. I mean, God asked him to lead. Yeah, A lot of people get that position. You've been asked to lead in your own life, too. That doesn't mean you're doing it well. Moses is going to do it well. He delivers his people from Egyptian slavery. That's no small thing, by the way. Have you ever seen one guy come in and deliver a people from slavery so that they're free now? I mean, that's a pretty big thing. Now, you could say, well, God's the one that did it. That's the the truth always. Okay, the fact that God is going to use a man, that man is going to participate and exert obedience and agreement with God, and then God's going to do the work. Well, that's, that's leadership in a nutshell. You didn't think that men are the ones that changed the world, did you? transfers his people from Egypt to the wilderness. An entire people group are going to move out of one sector of the world to another. An entire nation is going to be transferred. I mean, that's a massive ordeal. And he's going to organize a national system of worship, law, and order. I agree with you if you were to say, well, God did all of it. He's the one that parted the Red Sea. Oh, he's the one that gave the law. Yes, But this man is going to utilize the authority that he's been given to facilitate what God wants to be done in that nation, okay? That shouldn't be understated in a situation like this because that's the whole point. You are given an Alfred position just in a smaller way. You are given a Moses position just in a smaller micro way. And yet you, like them, need to make decisions to say yes to what God is doing. Joshua He utterly defeats the enemies of Israel. He transfers his people from a nomadic condition to a permanent condition. He establishes a clear military system under the kingship of Jehovah. 
This is a total transformation. It's a new work that is going to happen under both Moses and then a new work under Joshua. Amazing leadership. And of course, the greatest picture of leadership that ever existed, the most powerful demonstration of someone coming in and instituting a new system is Jesus Christ. He utterly defeats the power of sin and crushes the head of the ancient enemy. He delivers his people from the kingdom of darkness into his kingdom of light and establishes a new system, not just for one little aspect of life, but for living, (laughs) for all life. Every single thing in life, you have a new system for how you do it now. And it is no longer governed by your own willpower and your determination and your exertion. It is now empowered by his Holy Spirit. It's like a new covenant in his blood, a new way of living life. Okay, that's a pretty radical shift that is going to take place. Jesus has been given authority. He exerts it in this limited realm that he's in, and he changes the earth in which he's in. You could say, well, he's God. That's right. And guess who lives inside of you? You see, the same one that was working through Moses in Joshua, and of course the Spirit of God that raises Christ from the dead dwells in you, the same one wants to exert the life that you have, even if it's a smaller version of something, to change the world in which you live. The start of something new. Moses, this is just a fascinating meditation, 40 years he's going to be in the backside of the wilderness, and those years are going to be completed. So at the end of 40 years, he's going to run into a burning bush. When he runs into a burning bush, it's a, it, I have on the screen, it says, the Lord meets his man, and his man removes his sandals. I know, you're like, okay. And yet, look at the parallel here. Joshua, 40 years are going to be complete in the wilderness. The Lord meets his man, and what does Joshua do? The man removes his sandals. Okay, now, look at this one. Jesus, 400 years complete. The Lord becomes the man. This man asks us to remove our sandals so he can wash our feet and shod them with new shoes. There seems to be something about a transition into something new that involves the removal of sandals. Isn't that fascinating? Why? What is a sandal? Well, it's fascinating because even in the Joshua situation, those, those sandals had not worn out for 40 years, and Joshua's going to take off those sandals. In fact, that's like a picture that it's the way in which they had been walking. And now suddenly that way is going to change. What does a sandal signify? It's what you've been walking in, the way you've been walking. And we need to be willing to remove our sandals at a juncture in life where God says, are you ready to do something new? See, a lot of us hold on to our traditions in the way we've always done it. Why would you want to hold on to the ways you've always done it if you're living in the wilderness? It's like we have daily manna, it comes down, it's so much easier than this whole idea of going out and like planting a crop and, you know, hunting. It's like, oh boy, that's going to be hard. No, no, you actually want that. You'd rather have some variety in your diet, wouldn't you, than just manna? And, oh, but our sandals don't wear out here in the wilderness. No, technically it's not a bad thing to have sandals that wear out if you can live in the land flowing with milk and honey. You see, this is a shift. This is a change. It's a moving forward. Isaiah 43, 16 through 19, thus says the Lord who makes a way through the sea and a path through the mighty waters, who brings forth the chariot and the horse, the army and the mighty man, do not call to mind the former things or ponder things of the past. Behold, I will do something new. 
Now it will spring forth. Will you not be aware of it? I will even make a roadway in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. Now, I just happen to be speaking to a troop of students that is in transition. We have just finished up something that was very, very precious these five weeks. And now, whether we like it or not, there's something new. It doesn't mean that what you're returning to is a new house or a new family. It just means it's something new. You're, in a sense, removing old shoes, and you're going to have your feet shod with new ones. It's a new way of living now. Wherever you're going, this is the case for all of us, okay? We're taking a step forward, and we're applying what we know to be true. There is a new thing, but we have a tendency to either want to hold on to the season here at Ellerslie, or we want to hold on to old ways that we did things, not because we like those ways, but because they're familiar. Have you ever noticed that, that you'll tend to do something you've always done, not because you like its results and the fruit it bears, but at least it's predictable bad fruit, you know, whereas if you do something new, you don't know what you're going to get. It's, it's totally un- unknown. It could be great. Yeah, but it could be terrible. The capital R reformer and the lowercase r reformer. So I'm going to just say it this way, point blank, you are called to reform the world in which you live. You are a reformer. Now, there's a capital R version of being a reformer. That's Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate reformer, but every single one of us is called to take our space of jurisdiction, our territory in which we've been entrusted and actually change it for the glory of God, starting with our own thought life, our own emotions, our own body, how this behaves. This territory is our first ruling territory. Then, if we have any influence outside of that, in a marriage, in a family, in a church, in a community, we do what we are given the authority and the privilege to do to change it for Jesus Christ. What you're going to witness in Alfred is so stunning. We need to recognize that he is doing something that all of us should be doing in our life. So the third system. Now that's sort of a funny word. There's a lot of funny words in this Anglo-Saxon era. Have you noticed that? There's a lot of words, and I haven't even given you most of them, okay? If I was giving you most of them, I'd be sitting there with, you know, uh, ways... I'd be sticking a whole bunch of odd words on the screen, and then I'd have to be explaining them to you. So I've skipped most of them. But this is what it was called. It was called the third system. It was the military system of Alfred's father. And I'm just going to say it. It stinks. It is a terrible system. And the reason why the Anglo-Saxons are having such a difficult time against the Vikings is because they are leaning on an old system, and the Vikings have have a souped-up, upgraded military model. The Vikings move with quickness and speed. They come into a town, loot it, pillage it, and leave. The Wessex uh, soldiers take two weeks to get to that very town to defend it. Two weeks. When you take two weeks to get somewhere, did you know that it's not going to be very effective if the group coming in can be there in one day and loot the entire city, kidnap people, take them for slaves, rape the women, and take all the jewels and leave? Okay, how effective do you think you're going to be? And that's exactly what's happened to the entire island of Britannia. They have been destroyed by the Vikings because they're all built on a third system. The third system, I'm guessing, worked somewhere along the line, but it doesn't work today. Now, the question is, when you inherit a system, that's just what system you have. Everyone is used to it, okay? So 
As a result, certain things are sacred. Even for a king, when you come in and you begin to question, why do we do it this way? Everyone goes, hey, don't question the system. This system has always worked for us. Well, it's not working now. Yeah, but, but it may. It may still work. No, it doesn't work. This stinks. Okay, to actually come to that conclusion and to say we need to reform it, we need to change it, is actually really hard in each of our lives. There's certain aspects of our lives that are producing the same furred stink. They're not working. And yet we need to be honest to say this doesn't work. What's wrong with it? And if you keep getting the same bad fruit out of an area of your life, you need to allow the Spirit of God to touch it. So the Saxon soldiers weren't being bested in their shield wall. They were being bested in how long it took to build their shield wall. You see, their shield wall, if you were to just, if you've listened to what I've said so far, when they go shield wall against shield wall, have you noticed that almost every time they win? However, they're not always there to get the shield wall built. And the Vikings have already swept through. And so the, the Wessex soldiers are, here's, here's how it works. You know, you have the king that says, huh, we need to respond. There's an invasion in the north. And then so they send out messengers to all of their eldermen. And then they're the ones, there's about you know, 10 to 12 of them that are over the different provinces. And then the eldermen are like, ah! And then they call all of their farmers and their craftsmen, and they're like all the men of war, and they say, rally here at you know, this you know, meat hall, and, and we will you know, gather our forces together. This takes, and then all the farmers have to figure out who's going to take care of their farm in their absence. All the craftsmen are like, what am I supposed to do with my business? How's this going to work? So they get some, you know, their son to come in and take it over, and they get everything set up, everything packed up, and then they meet. And by the time all of this comes together, it's been about two weeks. And so, yes, it's pretty impressive that all these men are willing to lay down everything and pick up a sword and go and fight, but it's a very inefficient system. So it's not that they, when they got shield wall to shield wall, the Saxons are tough cookies. They're great fighters. However, they're just not getting there in time. Dr. Merkel says it this way, but it wasn't just the casualties of war that had so weakened the shield walls of Wessex. The awkwardness of the Anglo-Saxon military structure was an important factor in the depletion of forces. Though Alfred has his, had his own contingent of professional warriors attached to his court, their number was small, less than 100 men, and hardly constituted an army. Whenever the king of Wessex needed to gather an army to fend off an enemy invasion, it was necessary that he assembled the Ferd, a voluntary ad hoc militia. The numerous landowning noblemen of Wessex, the eldermen, who commanded the loyalty of the local farmers and craftsmen of the individual shires, held the Ferd together. These eldermen ruled the shires on the king's behalf, enforcing the rule of law, ensuring that taxes were gathered, and preparing the shires to defend themselves in case of attack. Each elderman had the ability to summon a ferd from his shire, a force numbering up to several thousand men. Then when a national emergency arose, the king could call his eldermen along with their shire ferds, <clears throat> creating one large national ferd, numbering as many as 10,000 men. That's impressive. The Ferd system totally depended on the corresponding obligations of a man to his lord and the lord back to his subjects. These simple instincts, the faithfulness to a master and the love for a people, forged a strong and compelling bond that time and again held the warriors of Wessex together in the clash of the shield walls. 
So this has always been, and there's certain aspects to this, like we know in the shield walls and the oaths and the loyalty, it's beautiful. And so you don't really want to mess with that by touching the Ferd system, because that's so beautiful. Everything that's happening in the Mead Hall and that bond and that, the ring giving, this is all part of the Ferd system. And so technically, that's like what many of us are like, oh, I love that. And yet, is it possible to keep what is good about this, but fix it? Because it's not working, guys. We're being devastated by Vikings. But there was a clumsiness and inefficiency to this system as well. First, there, this was not a standing army. This was a force that had to be summoned for each individual action, a process that could take weeks to complete. Armies that moved and struck swiftly, like the Viking raiding armies, had way too much time to, ad to advance untouched. Second, because the Ferd was composed of a loose combination of smaller Shire Ferds, the National Ferd had very geographically divided loyalties. For instance, when the National Ferd was involved in a retreating campaign, as Alfred was at this point, this is earlier in the story, the various Shirefords often dropped out of the army as their Shire was conquered. So imagine you have 10 Shires in Wessex, and imagine the Vikings are sweeping down and they've already taken over three of the Shires. Well, the Ferds from those Shires are going to go back home, why? To protect their families from the Vikings and their farms. In other words, they're going to become, so as a result, you're going to lose three of 10. So 30% of your army is just going to melt away as that happens. And as they continue to progress, guess what? You just lost more of your army. Your army is getting smaller, even though your need is getting greater. And that's an ineffective system. Leveraging the gaps. Don't waste the moments of reprieve. In the storyline in 878 in the summer, when the Battle of Eddington is going to be won by the Saxons, it's an incredible victory. That's not what we're talking about today. What's going to happen is Ethelstan is going to take his Viking hordes out of Wessex and it's going to leave a season, a season for Wessex to recover. If you've ever had a season to recover, a season of reprieve, what is our tendency, humanly speaking? It's to, I don't know, sleep in, you know, just like catch up, as we always say, catch up on sleep. Do you ever, ever wonder if catching up on sleep actually works? Have you ever had it where it's just like, okay, I got two hours of sleep this night, I got two hours of sleep this night. If I get like 20 hours of sleep this day, does it balance out and my body's like, okay, that averages out to around eight hours of sleep a night. Huh, that, okay, I feel good now. I'm not sure if that's how it works or not, but that's how we think, right? And so as a result, we have a tendency to try and make up for lost time, make up for lost rest, lost comfort, when you have a gap and you're seeing clearly, what you want to do is repair walls that were broken down. And what you're going to see Alfred do is not go into celebration mode. He's not going to go in, whoo, I'm glad that's gone. Hey, someone bring me a big pint of mead. He is actually going to go in restoration mode of how he can change his nation so that they can better stand against the next attack. He knows it's coming. Do you know it's coming? Do you realize that the enemy has not given up on you? And though you are victorious at this turn, did you know that your enemy is still going to return? And do you have walls built? Do you have a system, a military system that is ready to face it? So don't waste the moments of reprieve. Dr. Merkel says it this way, the departure of the Viking force together with the new alliance formed with Ethelstan, the man previously known as Guthrum, left Alfred and his weary kingdom with an unexpected respite from 
respite from the military campaigns. Alfred understood that this peace would only be temporary, since other Northmen, the Vikings, seeking plunder would inevitably come to try their luck at despoiling the wealth of Wessex. Therefore, this respite from the Viking-inflicted bloodshed could not be spent in peaceful rest and relaxation, feasting and drinking in the meat hall, and enjoying the intensely refreshing English summer. Doesn't that sound nice? The intensely refreshing English summer. I don't know that Colorado summers are ever described. Intensely refreshing. We have intensely refreshing falls. I don't know that we would call it summer. So that just sounds really nice. Rather, this was a surprising lull in the storm that offered a brief but much-needed chance to rethink the organization of the defenses of Wessex and to better prepare the Saxon military for fighting off future invasions. There are going to be gaps in your life. One of them, especially if you're an Ellerslie student right now, when you first return home, that time of transition into the next phase is very, very important, that you don't go into a mode of just like, oh, I just need to catch up. I just need to sort of go brain dead on spiritual focus because I've been really intense uh, in that. But to actually leverage this time to grow stronger, to not grow weaker through the transition, but stronger. The audacious goal. Listen to uh, Alfred's audacious goal that he's going to hatch. To quickly field an army large enough to fend off the Viking armies. Alfred could no longer rely on the sluggish response of the traditional Ferd. Instead, he would need a, to maintain a large standing army of soldiers skilled in warcraft who were ready to respond to an invading army at a moment's notice. I mean, this is a total reimagining of Saxon military. I mean, his father, his, fa- his granddad, his great-granddad... None of them had faced anything like what he's facing. He needs to change the system. The invention of the Burr system, it's a new thing. Never been done. In fact, as you hear about what is going to be done in the Burr system, you're going to sit back and go, huh, that sounds vaguely familiar throughout history. The more you know military history, you're like, huh, Alfred is going to invent something here that is going to be around for a long time. So first, Alfred divided the Ferd system into two parts. So I'm, I'm creating my own names for these because I am taking a very complex thing with a very weird Saxon name to it, Burgleheidage. I mean, everything about this is just hard to describe, and I'm going to try and make it simple. So I was thinking, okay, if I could understand it simply, then maybe you could too. Okay, that's my goal. Ferd 1 and Ferd 2. So you're going to divide up the Ferd system into two parts. You're going to Ferd 1, part 1, is the fighting Saxons. And third part two is the farming Saxons. And you could include the craftsmen and, you know, the welders and the blacksmiths and all that. They, they go into uh, that third part two. Now, this is a rotating group. In other words, you're part of third part one for 60 days, and then you're going to switch, and you're going to go into third part two. And then after 60 days, switch, you're going to go back again. So then he created a calendar of 60-day rotations when Ferd 1 would switch positions with Ferd 2. When Alfred yelled, he didn't actually yell rotate. That's me adding that in. Uh, when Alfred yelled rotate, the fighting Saxons would become farming Saxon, uh, Saxons, and the farming Saxons would become fighting Saxons. In other words, it was active duty. It's what we know as active duty. And so they would actually know this in their calendar, so they would know when they're not going to be there, so they could plan ahead to take care of their farm. <clears throat> to take care of their business. And, the, and the, the third that was staying behind would take care of the other farms, would take care of the other businesses. In other words, you're working together with organization to deal with this. 
Then Alfred strategically divided up the fighting Saxons into two parts and placed them in in strategic locations all throughout Wessex. This is pretty cool. So fighting Saxons, that's fizz, okay? If you're talking about farming Saxons, that'd be faz. This is my made-up name uh, for them, okay? So the fizz one, the fighting Saxons, number one, there's the first group, he's going to divide it into two. And the first one is the Wessex Wandering Warriors. This is the triple W. Okay, again, these are my names. If you're wondering, it's like, oh, that's fascinating that Alfred came up with that. No, he didn't come up with that. The triple W moved about on horseback, slept in fields, and were able to travel to any point of need in the country within days and engage in war at a moment's notice. So they would move around. They were always ready and moving around, and they were on horseback, not on foot. So as a result, they could get to places quickly, hopefully within one day. That was their goal, that they would, at any point in time, so he, he had the, the wandering, what did I call them, the Wessex wandering warriors. See, Alfred, if he had had me on staff, we could have come up with some good names for these things. He's, he'd be like, Eric, what do we call these again? That's uh, the triple W, sir. Uh, he'd be like, I like that. <clears throat> now we have fizz number two, the fighting Saxons group number two, the big boys of the burrs, the triple Bs. Okay, the triple Bs were assigned to one of 30 burrs. I haven't described to you what a burr is yet, okay? throughout the territory of Wessex and were ready to defend their assigned burr at a moment's notice. Now, if you were to take a city sort of like Pittsburgh, you're going to understand what a burr is, sort of, okay? That's where the term comes from. Burr is the basis for burg, okay, which means something. In, in this old Saxon world, that was a term that was now being invented right here in... Uh, in this exact time of 878. So now what's a burr? It's a city that has been clothed in armor. Isn't that a cool way of saying it? That's what it is. You're taking an existing city, and so there's 30 of them, and they were all about uh, 15 minutes apart, uh, if you were, or 15 miles apart, and so they're all within close range of each other, scattered throughout all of Wessex. So Dr. Merkel says it this way, Alfred ordered that each of these 30 cities be fortified with a defensive wall capable of withstanding an assault by Danish attackers. The construction of these defenses transformed a selected city into a burr, the Anglo-Saxon word for a fortified dwelling. Many English towns still carry the remnants of this designation in their names, the suffixes burg or bury indicate their former classification as an ancient burr. A deep moat and a newly constructed wall encircling the city defended each of the 30 burrs. Isn't that cool to think of? That Alfred's literally going to say, we're building moats around them and we're building walls. And as a result, you're going to see our ancient idea, like when we look back to this time and we see moats and we see uh, walls and all of this, that's, this is actually when that is going to be implemented by Alfred right here. So I have a, a picture of an old burr wall. Uh, there. Isn't that intriguing? And I can understand that's, that if I was a Viking and I came up to that, I would be a little intimidated. It's like, oh, can I, can I jump over that? That would be rather difficult. You'd have to build some kind of ramp to get up it, some kind of ladder system, but they're not expecting that. You have to recognize the next group that is going to come in, which is one of my upcoming messages, which is sort of fun, which is in a sense the testing of the Burr system. Because when he builds this, he doesn't know if it's going to work. Whenever we step into a new thing, there's a risk involved. And so that's a fun message. <clears throat> Don't you guys want to stay around a little longer and just, just to hear that message? 
Dr. Merkel says, Alfred's innovations in organizing the garrisons that would defend the fortified cities of Wessex constitute probably the greatest administrative accomplishment of his reign. First, the king carefully selected 30 Wessex cities to receive garrison forces from the rotating third. Each of these cities was positioned with, within around 20 miles or one day's march of, of another. Someone else said 15, but we'll go with 20 since that's what he says. I, I trust Dr. Merkel. Forming a network of fortified cities that covered the extent of Wessex. How might this affect you? Are you like ancient Wessex and in need of a new military system? Have you ever had it where you're getting hounded by something and you're just getting a little frustrated that the devil seems to make a lot of noise in your life? And it seems that no matter what you do, the devil seems to still get away with some nonsense. Just imagine how Alfred's feeling right now. Alfred means well. He, does, he truly desires to spare his country from this Viking invasion. But his system that he inherited is insufficient to push them out. And so right now he feels very vulnerable. Yes, he's had some victories like you have, but he needs to modify and to change some of the core facets of his life. And many of us find ourselves in such a position that in this time at Ellerslie, for instance, you have seen victory and you have seen Guthrum pushed out. And you have, but if I were to say, how do you feel now for the next step? Some of you might feel, I feel rock solid. I got my burrs in place, moats around it. You know, I got my third system divided up. I got, you know, I'm allocating my resource, my time, my energies to make sure Christ is center. Got it. Some of you in hearing that little speech are like, don't got it. <laughs> in other words, that's, that's part of where you feel a little wobbly. That's not bad. What does God desire in you? To pull an Alfred. To resolve, I always often say, gather the soul together and say, not on my watch. God has given you one opportunity to live this life. Live it with gusto. Do not play the victim. Do not say, oh, well, that's just the way I guess it's going to be. Alfred could have easily fled the country and no one would have considered it wrong. Because every king was being hunted and they would have been cut to pieces and offer, offered to this, as a sacrifice to the God of the Vikings in a horrible demonic way. If you're a smart king, you get out of town. Alfred would not back down. And we all look back and we're like, I like what that guy did. Yeah. As an inspiration for what we are all supposed to do, which is to stand against. We are to submit to God and stand against and resist the enemy's encroachment. The enemy will flee when we do that. So does it often take you weeks to acknowledge you are wrong and to confess your sin? Sort of like an old third system. <laughs> it's like, well, you, you eventually do it. They eventually get there, and they're really strong when they finally get there, but is it taking you weeks to agree with God and to just come to the point where you need to humble yourself? I mean, have you ever noticed that if you take a longer time, then it takes some of the zing out of needing to apologize? Because it's like, yeah, I remember that one thing a long time ago. I did, and someone's like, no, I don't. And like, oh, good. Well, I just wanted to seek your forgiveness for it. And it's a little easier when the, the zing of the moment isn't in the air. Is your soul lacking a wall about it, and therefore it's easy for the enemy to affect your mood, impact your thoughts, distract you from Christ, and plunder your spiritual gains? You could have a moment where you hear truth, and you're like, yes! And then the enemy just comes in and robs it. And you're like, what was that that I said yes to? I said yes to something, but I just can't remember what it was. 
You see, you're missing your burr wall. That wall is supposed to be there, so when the Viking comes, he's like hindered. And he's like, hey, I, I used to just be able to walk right in. Now I have this moat, and I got this wall. What am I supposed to do about that? You see, he's frustrated. You're not. See, this is what God intends you to do. It's called fortification. Are you allowing the enemy to kidnap precious peace because you are not taking your thoughts captive to the will of Christ Jesus? Does your furred resolve to fight fade too quickly when a long siege occurs? Remember earlier in our series, whenever the Saxon army would lay siege, because the, the Vikings are smart, so they get caught by the Saxons, so they just fortress themselves in, and, and the Saxons now have to starve them out. But the problem is, these are farmers with farms. These are craftsmen with businesses. These are fathers with children. I can't just stay here and wait for the Vikings to finally throw up the white flag. And so guess what? They'd start sneaking out of town, and the entire army would melt down. And it's like, okay, that doesn't work. Is that, what, is that what's happening to us? Does your third resolve to fight fade too quickly when a long siege occurs? When you experience a challenge and a resistance in your forward progress, do you give up and go, oh, I guess I don't want to push on that wall anymore? Or do you keep fighting? The old third system was a failure. But the new system, the Burr system, we don't give up. We keep fighting. If we lay siege, we have a standing army. They're ready to do it. Oops, sorry, one more there. Are you constantly distracted from fighting your king's battles due to the cares of this life? I got a farm uh, back in my shire that I need to tend to. Uh, my kid has a dentist appointment, and I really need to get to that. I mean, we have, they had so many issues back then, and everyone was sort of volunteer. It's like, hey, I'd love to help you out, king, but I have personal issues. And is that the way we're living out our Christian life? Our personal issues, our cares are actually trumping the priority of God in our life? The difficulty of change. You have walked 40 years in those sandals and they have not worn out. How can you part ways with them now? When a change comes, when a need for a burr system to trade out for your furred system comes, it's, I don't know why it's hard, but for some of us, we really are, have a repellent uh, thought against change. We don't want it. We don't like change. We, we sort of like it the way it's always been. Do you like it the way it is now in your third system? Well, not really, but, well, then why do you keep it? If you knew that God had a burr system for you, where there was a fortressing in, where there was something that would actually defend against the Viking invasion, the Viking ideology, the Viking nonsense that keeps sneaking into your life, wouldn't you want to go after that, even if it took a little work? This took a lot of work. Imagine what this nation is thinking. It's like, are you serious? We're going to build 30 walls. These are huge cities. We're going to build walls around 30 cities. That's a lot of stone. And we're going to build moats around them as well. And what's our timetable for this? Right now. We're doing this right now. We don't know when the Vikings are returning, but we want to be ready for them. We often despise our old patterns, but cling to their predictability. I don't know if I shared this th during the semester, but there's a story that C.S. Lewis talks about where this one guy comes up into the heavenly realms. I don't remember which book it was. I just remember the story. And he has this like creature on him that's like sucking life at him. It's painful. It's miserable. And this angelic character comes up with a sharp sword and says, I can remove that for you. 
And it's funny because this guy's been complaining about this growth, this creature, this you know, thing on his shoulder for so long, but now he has the opportunity to remove it and he sees the bright, shiny blade. <laughs> and he's thinking, I don't know that I really want the pain of that separation because he has a known pain of the misery with this creature on him, but that's an unknown pain of having it cut off. And so as a result, he is going to choose to keep the creature with the known pain instead of have the creature removed by the unknown pain. The question is, do we really want it removed? Do we trust God with his flaming sword to get the furred system out of our life and to establish a burr system? Or are we going to justify, it's like, hey, you know what? I just don't know that we can handle the Vikings. You know, they just seem really strong. It's an issue of faith. Do you know who has the victory? And are you willing to allow him to do what he must do in your life? The secret to Alfred's armor. That was sort of what this whole message was about. You, didn't, you thought I was talking about like armor, armor, right? But this is actually armor of a nation. The secret to Alfred's armor is his willingness to do something new. You see, your old armor, and they had to change armor throughout history too because there's armor that suddenly was being punctured by longbows. What's the good of armor if suddenly a bow or an arrow can pierce it? It's like, whoa, that's not working like it was supposed to. And so they recognized they needed to revisit armor. And the same thing is true here. Their old third system used to work. It doesn't work now. And so as a result, his strength, the secret to Alfred's armor and what is ultimately going to prove to change the course of history on this island is his willingness to say, we're changing the whole thing. There's a wise saying, I don't know who said it, but I'm going to just put it up on the screen. I grew up with this statement. The will of God is the safest place on earth. In other words, when you're walking in obedience to God, you're actually in the safest place. There could be Vikings out there. However, you're where God wants you, and that's the safest place you could be. And I remember one guy saying this when he was going into, uh, what was it, the, uh, the red light district of Amsterdam with his family. And if you've ever been to Amsterdam, it's a pretty, you know, there's, there's a lot of bad stuff going on there, especially in the red light district of Amsterdam. And he's bringing his family to live there. And his statement was, God has called me, and I trust that the safest place for my family is in my obedience. And I trust that God is going to care for all of us, including my kids, in the midst of all this filth. That's a hard one for any of us. But to move in the direction of obedience makes us feel vulnerable. However, the safest place on earth, if you want to be secure from the Vikings, obey God. Follow God. Even though there might be a flaming sword there saying, are you ready for me to cut this off? <laughs> how much pain is going to be associated with that? Does it really matter if you could be set free? A little pain for a little moment actually isn't that big of a deal when you could be set free forever from that hindrance in your life. So here's uh, the command. Change it! Change it all! That's in a sense what Alfred is going to say from his mead bench throne. Change it. Change it all. He is going to alter the entirety of this culture. Okay, I'm just getting going on what he's going to change. But this man is going to assess the situation that he has inherited, which was a good, I'm going to say Christian nation, however, it was a Christian nation in disrepair. The same thing we've inherited. And he is going to alter it wholly and completely, almost unrecognizably. 
If there is a weakness, do what it takes to fix it. So if the Holy Spirit is showing you a weakness in your territory that you have been set to govern, what should you do? Pull it out for it, guys. Respond to what the Spirit of God is saying. Don't just accept it going, oh, it's just the way it is. Everyone has a weakness like this. Yeah, all the other nations on Britannia, they were taken by Vikings. Why should I consider myself different here in Wessex? Because in Wessex, they have a man who is going to push back. Sometimes we just need to see the Alfred inspiration, and we need to say, so that's the way I'm supposed to do it. Dr. Merkel uh, says, under Alfred and the protection of that, uh, and the protection that the Burr system ensured, trade and industry began to thrive in Wessex. Seeing the importance of this element of the economy, Alfred also undertook a major renovation of the Saxon currency. When he came to power, only two mints could be found in the nation of the Saxons. Those are places that actually make money. And these two mints produced an extremely crude coin, boasting a severely debased silver content of 20%. A thriving industry of trade would require that these deficiencies be fixed. The new silver pennies that Alfred had ordered to be produced were almost pure silver. In order to mint these new silver pennies, four of the earlier pennies needed to be melted down to provide enough silver for one new penny. If you know finances, you can understand very quickly how costly that would be to a nation. In other words, so I'm going to take four pennies, and I'm going to turn them in and get one back. Yeah, but that one will be actually more valuable in the long run, because it's going to be almost pure silver. And so he is going to make this decision globally across Wessex that at first, Wessex is going to look like it's losing three-quarters of its wealth in order to establish its wealth for the long haul. Doesn't that sound like the kingdom of heaven, too? Mary of Bethany is literally pouring out her spikenard. Why? Because she knows, she's convinced she's getting something greater. Why would you sell all to buy that field? Why would you sell all to buy that pearl of great price unless you were convinced that in giving up everything, you were getting something greater? The cost was substantial, but the king believed that a restored confidence in the currency would attract the attention of Europe's traders and eventually would bring a much greater amount of wealth to the nation. So to give up three quarters of your wealth in order to have a future and a hope, what an interesting decision for a king to make. Could you imagine how well this went over with the people? They're going to have to build all these burrs and all these moats. Can't we just celebrate the fact that we just kicked the Vikings out? No! No! because they're coming back. Let's get strong in this season. And and by the way, everyone, turn in your money. We're going to give you one penny back for every four. Like, that is just a horrible idea. Or is it? Alfred's innovations had a tremendous impact on the economy of Wessex, catching the attention of merchants throughout Europe who were drawn to the wealth of the newly thriving English nation. Don't you want that to be the description of your Christian life? The thriving nation. Well, how do you get a thriving nation? It's going to take some sacrifice. You're going to have to take this seriously. You've been given one shot at this thing. You have one body. Take care of it. You have responsibilities. Wield with the authority that you've been given, the grace of God, with wisdom to change the world in which you live. Father, Stir us unto action. May we not take this picture lightly, but may we respond with vigor and say, yes, Lord, like that. Do it in and through 
me. Lord, we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.